welcome to today's podcast. We're here today to talk about COPD for World COPD Day. Um, my name is Chris Barron. I'm one of the respiratory specialist nurses in Craigavon Hospital. And with me, I've got a esteemed colleague of mine. Elizabeth Sloan, one of the respiratory nurses here in Craigavon also. So just to start, COPD, it stands for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. Many people in the community have heard of it and they know that it's a breathing condition. Um, one thing that I think people are a bit uh, confused about is that they think that this is something called the smoker's disease and that it's only smoking that can cause this disease. We're here to answer a few questions about that and to give you a bit more information about it so people are a bit more informed about what they can do to reduce the incidence of, of getting this condition and to live a long, healthy life. So to start with, it's a bit shocking, but in 2019, COPD caused 3.2 million deaths. When I first read that, I find that really shocking because I didn't really think of COPD as a terminal illness. Elizabeth, do you think, would we con consider it a terminal illness? Um, I think terminal is a bit harsh and um, it is a disease that affects the lifestyle it's very much a chronic disease i think there is hope that as in even though it is chronic and can progress we can very much slow down the disease process and we can manage it very well through different techniques which i'm sure you'll be talking about later chris yeah and um, but no i i don't tend term to favor a terminal but it does involve some lifestyle ch changes okay so copd not a terminal disease, but a life-limiting chronic disease. So although you can live for many years having been diagnosed with this, it will um, affect your quality of life. Um, it's not something, I think whenever people are diagnosed with it, they think that it's something that they can live with and they can manage quite well. And yes, people can, but there are ways to avoid getting this disease and we're gonna go through those. So nearly 90% of COPD deaths are in those over the age of 70. So it's important whenever you're living your life younger, so I'm talking to the younger people listening, that you try to avoid some of the things that do cause this condition. And um, smoking is one of the main causes, okay? But there are other things, chemical and um, exposure. So think of the jobs that you're doing. So in the last podcast, we talked about occupational lung disease. It, it is a fact that the job that you do, you're gonna be exposed to chemicals if you're doing cleaning, if you're working in factories. So environmental exposures. There is also another um, side to this that people maybe don't know about. There's a, a rare genetic component. So whether you smoke or you don't smoke, you could end up with COPD if you have something called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So that sounds very scientific, um, but it's a, it's a simple blood test that you can do if you have a family history of COPD. There's a blood test that can be done to see if you are more at risk of, of um, getting this condition. Uh, so COPD, is the seventh leading cause of poor health worldwide. And this is measured by disability adjusted life years. It's also um, tobacco, as I said about smoking, tobacco smoking uh, accounts for about 70% of COPD cases in high income countries. So in low to moderate income countries, tobacco smoking accounts for 30 to 40% of COPD cases and household air pollution is the major risk factor. So if you think in the country that we're very lucky to be in, um, our air condition here is actually quite good. So we are actually causing our own um, COPD numbers, the, the high incidence of COPD here by smoking. 
Um, whereas in these other countries, people don't have a choice as much. Their condition is much lower. So we can do we can take a lot of stock of our own health in this country. And I think people need to be mindful of trying to live a tobacco free life. Um, and that also includes vaping. Vaping associated lung injury has been on the increase for a number of years, and we're seeing a lot of it in the hospital at the minute, um, not just linked to COPD, but to many other conditions. So just as an overview, COPD is a common lung disease caused um, causing restricted airflow and breathing problems. It's sometimes you might hear of it as emphysema or chronic bronchitis. People with COPD, um, they get damaged or the lungs get damaged or they get clogged with phlegm. And the symptoms of the condition include coughing with or without phlegm, difficulty breathing, wheezing, tiredness, chronic fatigue. So smoking and air pollution are the most common causes, um, as we've said, and people with COPD are at much higher risk of other health problems. Elizabeth, do you want to talk a little bit about those? So the most common symptoms of COPD you're going to, people will recognise as difficulty breathing or shortness of breath. This chronic cough, as I say, with or without phlegm and general really tired feeling. Um, symptoms can get worse quickly. This is what we call flare-ups or exacerbations. And that's when you probably will be seeing either your GP or one of ourselves or potentially maybe if it's far enough on um, a hospital admission. The last, they usually can last for about a few days and you sometimes then need additional medicines like antibiotics and steroids. Um, I think what we should be saying about COPD is that you can have a higher risk of other health problems. So this is, as I've said, more lung infections like flu or pneumonia. You, there is a, some incidence that you can get lung cancers from um, COPD. Heart problems as the condition develops, weak muscles and bones, brittle bones probably due to some of the medications that we need to give you to treat it and then because it is quite worrying being short of breath um, depression anxiety changes in lifestyle as well as very common factor with COPD. Okay um, so the common symptoms we've talked about and we've talked about some of the other things that can happen okay so um, I'm lucky enough um, to be joined with two of my medical um, um, colleagues here. So I've got Dr. Mike Scheel and Dr. Helen Close, who are two of the registrars on the respiratory ward in Kirkgallen Hospital. And they're going to help answer some of the questions surrounding COPD in a little bit more detail. So Mike, I've gone through a few of the things. I was just wondering what, what sort of investigations would you be ordering um, for a patient with COPD to, to see what's going on with them? Um, okay, thanks Adams. Um, so the first line investigation would usually be something called spirometry or more commonly people refer to as a lung function test. This involves uh, just measuring the air uh, you're breathing in and out and particularly it's looking for the, the rate it's coming out. The two main things we look for is something called the FEV1, which is the amount of air you can breathe out in one second when you're breathing out very fast. Um, and second thing is called your force bicycle capacity FEC, which is essentially the total amount of air that you can breathe out after taking a very deep breath in. Um, and there can be a range of patterns seen with in COPD, but the classic thing we see is what's called an obstructive pattern. And that means you can get out the total amount of air but because your airways have been narrowed off. It takes a lot longer to get there. So you often see your patients taking a very long exhalation they're taking a very long time to breathe out. And that's a typical structure pattern you see on spirometry, which is classic for COPD. Okay, that's really interesting. 
Um, so we've talked about once a patient is um, is diagnosed with COPD, so can we use the spirometry to stage the disease? Are there different stages over, or is it just COPD and that's what you've got? There are different stages, and it's kind of first off, you're looking for an obstructive ratio between the FEV1 and FEC, which is typically less than 0.7, and then it's staged by your total FEV1, which that how much you get at one second, and it's broken down by mild, moderate, severe, essentially very severe, uh, based on on that uh, level on your spirometry. Now, this obviously gives uh, a severity based on spirometry. It doesn't always correlate perfectly with people's symptoms. So. Okay. And are there other things that you can use to diagnose other than spirometry, like scans or imaging? Yeah, these days a lot more people are undergoing CT scans for various reasons, but you typically can see changes uh, consistent with emphysema, which is essentially loss of lung tissue there, which is um, consistent with COPD. So you, so you have an idea that they are developing it even before you have your spirometry results. Okay, okay. And then, so once they have this disease, what do we do to treat them? What can we give to treat them? There's obviously, so if you stage them, I'm guessing that the stages would help guide our treatment of the condition. Mm -hmm. I think if on treatment, even before that, I don't know how much you talked about kind of primary prevention, secondary prevention before, obviously smoking cessation, even before I talk about treatment, will be the big thing for most of our patients. Yeah. Because unless uh, people are stopping smoking, then the disease is going to progress irrespective of what treatments we do. But the main kind of stay of treatment is inhaled therapy for COPD, and that's taking inhalers, and these are what we call bronchodilators, trying to open up your airways and therefore get easier to get your breath in and out and feel symptomatically better. Um, there's a couple of different types of these. Quite often people are seeing a lot of people with the blue inhaler, which is a, a short-acting um, version of this, and that's only for really symptom relief in the short term. Um, if people get symptomatic when they're exercising or otherwise, uh, whereas there are several classes of drugs which are more long-acting drugs we give um, to try and help open up the airways for the rest of the time. Um, these form two broad classes. You have your kind of long-acting beta agonists and your long-acting muscarinic antagonists, and they can work synergistically because they both work by different pathways to open up the airways. Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you. And then, so Helen, mm -hmm. if you have a patient that's on these treatments and they're doing well most of the time, but then they have an acute exacerbation that lands them, lands them into hospital. Yeah. What is it that we do in hospital that they can't do at home? And what treatment would, would we give them? Mm -hmm. So suppose we're looking to see what caused this acute exacerbation. Is there infection there that we need to get on top of? We might ask to send have some sputum which is your spit we can send that to the lab to see if there's anything growing so we can target then the antibiotic choice and um, but they may well need steroids at that point for a short course and um, to help as well as oxygen therapy then as well which we can then keep an eye on hospital and if the patient needs that as an outpatient we can arrange that as well we've got specialist community teams then that can look after that in the community but in hospital we can then give targeted antibiotics steroids and some oxygen therapy if required at that point and then it's really about the long-term management about outpatient follow-up and everything after that okay thank you that's brilliant and um, so we talked about oxygen therapy there i'm sure there are people out there that have heard about people with copd being sensitive to oxygen which is something that we're going to talk about just briefly because it is a bit more complicated but there's something called type 2 respiratory failure that you can get in copd so, Mike, do you mind just giving us a brief, just a synopsis of what type 2 is and how we treat it? So, type 2 respiratory failure involves when you have low oxygen levels 
that you'll have high carbon dioxide levels in your blood. And this is a sign that you're not ventilating, not getting enough air in out of your lungs to clear those gases when you're breathing. As you, as you say, Chris, these people are particularly sensitive to oxygen. And if they're given too much oxygen, it actually causes them to breathe more slowly and, and less deeply. And that carbon dioxide level can rise, which can cause quite severe problems. So it's very important to keep these uh, group of patients in the correct oxygen target saturations, which for the vast majority of people with a type two history of type two respiratory failure would be uh, an oxygen saturation of 88 to 92 percent. That's the oxygen level we're measuring on, on most people's finger. And they may need further treatments if they're particularly unwell. Uh, such things uh, called non-invasive ventilation, but that's a, a small minority of, of patients go on to need that. Yeah. So those patients that do go on to need that, they then go on to a, a national um, database so that it, whenever if they ever need to come into hospital again via ambulance, their GP, A&E and the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service are all aware that those patients are sensitive to oxygen. When an ambulance typically arrives at a, a person's home, they get blasted with oxygen because it's what we give people normally. And when they have a, something called type 2 respiratory failure, if you give them oxygen, as Mike says, it can make them very unwell. So it's one of the things that we do in the hospital is notify all of those different departments that will come in contact with the patient to safeguard them so that they're not given too much oxygen. But again, as Mike said, that is for a very low um, ratio of patients that we look after with COPD. Okay, that's great. So we've talked about steroids, we've talked about antibiotics, we've talked about oxygen. There is something else that I've wanted to mention, um, just about things that we can do in the community to try and improve the patient's quality of life generally. Is there anything you can talk about, Mike? Oh yes, so we quite often refer people for pulmonary rehabilitation. Um, and this is a series of classes that involve a number of things, um, such as breathing exercises, diet, physiotherapy activities, Activities and it's got an excellent evidence base for improving people's quality of life and reducing further uh, flare-ups of their COPD. So it's someone that we, uh, some, something we really should be referring all of our patients for uh, who, who are suitable because they can get a great benefit from it. Okay, that's great. And there was so not that long ago actually that I've heard about surgery for COPD. That's not something that I've really seen that much, but I have heard about it. Is that something that we typically do nowadays or? Um, it's very rare that we refer someone for this, but you can get what's called lung volume reduction surgery. Now, and people have what's called bullous emphysema. Essentially, I, I imagine it's almost like large balloons of in their lung, which is lung tissue that's not there anymore. It's just a giant bit of there. In these people, because that area of the lung is not working very well, if you take away that area of that lung, the rest of the lung will expand into space and work more efficiently. So you have to have a very distinct pattern on your CT scans of, of where your emphysema, your COPD is. And then that can be either done surgically, which obviously is quite a major procedure and has associated <clears throat> potential complications, or it can be done by um, something called endobronchial valves, which are one-way valves that let air out but not into that area of the lung to collapse it all down, let the good lung essentially expand that space. Um, but there's a number of criteria that would mean that this would be helpful for you, but it's quite rare to meet all those criteria. Okay, that's actually really interesting. I hadn't heard about that one with the, the valves. That's um, I'm going to do some more reading about that. So I think another thing which is very, very end-stage COPD, which I think in the last year there were only three in the country, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is lung transplant. Uh, lung transplant. Um, uh, 
as I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of the lung transplants. They are for a certain proportion of people. Um, again, there's, there's quite strict criteria for who will be suitable. So it's a very careful balance of having not too many other medical problems which would impact on your survival. You have to be in quite good physical shape, which is unfortunately a lot of our patients coming towards the end stage of their disease. Um, they might not have that physical uh, reserve there that would, would put them through the surgery because it's quite a high mortality. Yeah. Um, so it's quite dangerous to undergo a lung transplant. And it also means everyone has, who has one has to be on long-term immune suppression. There's very risk of infections, other things. So it's very strict criteria um, that the lung transplant centers will, will take for assessment. Um, but it's perhaps something that we need to be referring more for. But the converse side is, um, it's very important about the campaigns about organ donation and increasing the number of organs available because yeah. there's far more people waiting for an organ on the transplant list than is available to be transplanted. Yeah. So it's all about trying to increase the amount of transplants we can do to give people that second shot of life. Okay, that's great. Um, so as you said, the risks associated with, let's say you were one of the very few people that do undergo a lung transplant, you you then have to live quite a sheltered life once you've got it because you, you need to protect those lungs. You're on immunosuppressive therapy to um, stop you from rejecting the lungs. It's not something that we typically that we want for our patients really if we if it can be avoided. So living with COPD and managing COPD, but more so preventing getting COPD is the message that I really want to spread here today. So there are lifestyle changes that can improve the symptoms when you've got COPD. And I think Mike's already said the main one, quit smoking, quit vaping. Obviously, we it's not something that we can do for you, but it's something that we can help with. So there's smoking cessation services available through the hospital where you can get nicotine replacement therapy, counselling, um, and many other forms of support to try and get people living a tobacco and vape-free life. Um, we'd also say to avoid secondhand smoke or smoke even from indoor cooking and just things that you think you, your lungs are not going to like being exposed to these things. So there, there is a reason for that. It can make you sick later in life. Stay physically active, protect your lung from infections. And the way that we would say to get to do that um, is by getting your flu vaccine every year. If you're someone that needs it, um, I get your pneumonia vaccine and your COVID vaccines and make sure that you've had your latest boosters. And um, other than that, um, really, we just want people to try to live a healthy lifestyle so um good exercise good diet avoid smoking and um there are self-management plans to um available so whenever you come and see the likes of mike in the hospital or ourselves and um, the respiratory specialist nurses we'll talk through self-management plans about recognizing the signs and symptoms and about when you need to ask for help when you need to come to the hospital or when you need to go to your gp um, but really that was the message that I wanted to get out there today for anybody that is worried about a family member or a loved one or themselves suffering with COPD or worrying about their lung health, about trying to quit smoking or vaping and the hospital and your GP are there to help.